Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 11. Go ahead and turn to Romans 11 in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 11 on page 890. So turn there and open up, and we will spend a few minutes in Romans chapter 11, verses uh, verses 11 through 24. This is our next-to-last sermon in this section of the book of Romans, Romans 9 through 11. We're going to do this one this week, and then next week we will look at uh, chapter, or we'll look at verses 25 through 36, and then we're going to press pause on Romans for a few weeks. Uh, What we've been looking at for the last few weeks in Romans 9 through 11 uh, is basically Paul dealing with the nation of Israel, and uh, Israel's covenant relationship with God, what that means, what that does not mean, whether or not God has rejected his people that he made a covenant with, uh, whether or not God's word has failed. Um, It's kind of what we've been been looking at and dealing with in Romans 9 through uh, 11. If you remember, Romans chapters 1 through 8 uh, deals with uh, a lot of a lot of promises, a lot of big, sweeping, priceless promises that God makes to His people who trust in Jesus. Right? You've been justified by God's grace as a gift. You've been given His Holy Spirit. You've been given new life. You've been adopted as His children. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's an eternal glory that is waiting for you that far outweighs the suffering that you're experiencing now. Nothing in in all of creation could ever separate you from the love of God uh, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lots and lots of big promises for you, believers, followers of Jesus, in Romans 1 through 8. And Romans 9 through 11 is Paul basically saying, I realize that all of these promises that God is making to his people in Christ, are not the, it's not the first time that God has made a promise to someone. God made a lot of other promises earlier in redemptive history, most notably the promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the nation of Israel. I will uh, bring you into the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your great I will make your name great. I will bless the entire world through you. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so Paul has to prove in Romans if he wants his readers to have any modicum of assurance in the promises that he is saying that they possess from God in Christ, that we read about in Romans 1-8, through 8, if he wants his readers to have any assurance in those promises, he needs to help make sense of all of the promises that God made to Israel and show that God has, in fact, kept them. Because the prevailing thought was, God's promises to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, essentially guarantee that every single ethnically Jewish person will be saved by God forever, no matter what. No matter what they do, no matter what they believe, no matter what happens, if you're Jewish, you're saved by virtue of being Jewish. And so when these people that believed that heard Paul's gospel, that you're not saved by your Jewishness, but you're saved rather by trusting in Jesus... They immediately thought, well, Paul is just saying that God's word has failed. Paul is saying that God has not kept his promises and that God has rejected his people. And so Romans 9 is Paul clarifying and saying, nope, I do not think that God's word has failed. I do not think that God has rejected his people. 
I think that we need to all get on the same page about, what the, about the nature of God's promises to his people so that we can understand them and what God is saying, what he's promised, what he's not promised, so that we can then uh, better understand and derive confidence and assurance from all the promises that he has made to us, the people who trust in, in Jesus. So he's kind of explained thus far in Romans 9 through 11 that God never actually promised that every single ethnically Jewish person would be saved simply because they are ethnically Jewish. Instead, God made this corporate, holistic covenant promise to the nation of Israel as a whole. Right? And so, so there are, within that nation that God has made a covenant promise with, there are believing Israelites who trust in the promises of God, and they, are, they kind of constitute the spiritual Israel, the true Israel, the people of God. And then there are other ethnically Jewish Israelites who do not trust in the promises of God. And so God never promised that they would all be saved. God promised that those who trust him would be saved. But what God did mean, what, his, what God's covenant promise to Israel did mean is that he would never abandon the nation wholesale. He would never, he would always ensure that there's a remnant of faithful believers within the nation of Israel, trusting in God, walking with God. And that, that remnant would, would remain in effect throughout the entire age. There would never not be a time where there's a faithful, believing Jewish person on the planet, as it, as it were. But for the rest, so, so maybe this minority of people are believing Israelites that make up this remnant of believers, but for the rest, they have walked away from, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They, they, they put Jesus on the cross. They, uh, and so, so Paul describes them as having been darkened to the glory of Christ and having had their hearts hardened to the truth of the, the gospel. And so that's Romans 9 and 10 and kind of up through uh, chapter 11, verse 10. And uh, that is kind of where we pick up today in verse 11. So we're going to see two main points, uh, one in this passage and one in next week's passage, to kind of uh, bring closure to this whole topic, right? Uh, that kind of speak to why God has allowed some, or more accurately, uh, most of ethnically Jewish people at any given time. Why has God allowed them to reject Jesus and reject the gospel? And he kind of gives two big reasons. One that we'll look at in this week, which is so that the gospel can go out to the world, out to the Gentiles, so that the nations can hear and believe and be saved by Christ in the the gospel. And two, we'll look at next week, which is because at some point, eventually, I think near the end of the age when Jesus is about to return, but at some point, eventually, there's going to be this massive, widespread revival within the nation of Israel. Many within that nation are going to return and come back to God and trust in Jesus and be saved. So, so this week, Gentiles uh, are grafted in. Next week, uh, eventually, uh, Israel is going to be saved by God in his, his grace. And so kind of the, 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 like the, long, the long arc is basically that God makes a covenant with his people of Israel they, in turn, turn away, reject Christ. As they do, uh, there's a remnant of faithful believers who do trust in Jesus. God will see to it that that remnant always exists. Along the way, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. They can be saved. Eventually, the nation of Israel will return to Jesus, and they will be saved as well. The end result is that God, with his people, Jews, Gentiles, together forever for all of eternity. That's kind of the, the timeline that Paul is setting, setting out. But, Today we're going to look specifically at the Gentiles being grafted in, verses 11 through 24. I'm going to read it and then pray, and then we will get to work. It says, So I ask, did they stumble 
in order that they might fall. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, you were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, it's the root that supports you. But then some will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Sure, that's true. But those branches were broken off because of their unbelief, and you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for how the gospel has changed and is changing our lives as the people who trust in it. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come here and meet us this morning. Give us grace to hear your word, receive it, submit to it, respond to it with repentance and faith and obedience. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So, he starts by saying, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? He just said in the first ten verses uh, that while there is, while there are always going to be a, a remnant of elect persons within the nation of Israel, the fact remains that the vast majority of the nation of Israel have been darkened to the glory of the gospel and hardened uh, so that they won't believe it. So that's kind of, that's what it means to stumble. So he's saying, did that happen? Did they stumble? Did the vast majority of the nation of Israel stop believing the gospel, not believe the gospel in order that they might fall, in order just that the entire nation of Israel would just fall away from God and stop believing the, the gospel? Did God allow many within the nation of Israel to reject the gospel because he was planning on eventually letting everyone within the nation of Israel reject the gospel? And Paul's answer, no, by no means. It's a non-starter. 
right? God did not allow Israel to stumble, meaning some of them reject Jesus, so that Israel would eventually fall, meaning all of them would reject Jesus. God is always going to see to it that some within the nation of Israel will trust in Jesus. So that's not why God let Israel stumble. He didn't let Israel stumble so that they might fall. So then why did he let Israel stumble? Why did God allow for some, if not most, of the nation of Israel be hardened and darkened and reject Jesus? So that through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So so. God allowed for Israel to reject Jesus so that the gospel of the grace of Jesus could go out into the world, be heard by you and me and Gentiles all over the world, right? It goes from from Israel, so it started in Israel. It started, Jesus was a Jewish man born to Jewish parents. He worships in the Jewish temple. He inaugurates his ministry by choosing 12 Jewish disciples. His ministry is largely in and around the nation of Israel to Jewish people, inviting them to embrace him as their Jewish Messiah. But they don't embrace him. They reject him, dismiss him, accuse him of, being, of doing you know, his ministry in the power of Satan himself. They conspire together to murder him. And when they do... The, the good news of the gospel goes out to... Right, when they do, people like Paul and the apostles start to go on these missionary journeys to other countries and plant churches. Acts 2 says there were devout men from every nation. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. The book of Acts goes on to describe a man from Ethiopia, a Roman centurion, a woman from Thyatira, a jailer from Philippi. The book of Acts was written by a Gentile. Luke himself was not a Jew. He was Gentile. And so you've got this phenomenon of the gospel going out into the nations for Gentiles to hear it and believe it and be saved by Jesus through it. In other words, the trespass of Israel... They're rejecting Jesus, results in the salvation coming to the Gentiles. People like you and me having the opportunity to hear and trust in Jesus. So you may think, all right, the trespassing of, of salvation, uh, Israel's trespass resulted in salvation coming to the, to the Gentiles. So I guess that just means that God's done with Israel and he's now begun with the nations. That's, that was the shift that took place. No, not so fast, right? Uh, through their trespass, salvation came to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So Paul says, God allowed Israel to reject Jesus so that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, so that Israel would then see these other nations trusting in their Jewish Messiah, their Jewish Savior, and say, wait a minute, that, hey, like that's, our, that's our Savior, that's our Messiah. How, where do they get off worshiping our Savior and our Messiah and enjoying the benefits that were initially offered to us that we rejected? Now they have them. And so, so God's intention for the, for the plan of redemption is to let the gospel, through the rejection of Israel, go out beyond the nation of Israel, but then to cause Israel to become jealous and kind of boomerang back and cause them to trust in Jesus and resulting in one kind of multi-ethnic family of God, Jews and Gentiles all together. Verse 12, now if their trespass, meaning Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, if their trespass means riches for the world, meaning 
Gentiles having the opportunity to trust in Jesus and be saved from their sins. If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure, Israel's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, means riches for the Gentiles, Gentiles having an opportunity to trust in Jesus and be saved from their sins, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Paul's anticipating a time when Israel will no longer just be trespassing and rejecting Jesus, but eventually they will be included and they will embrace Jesus. And it's an argument from lesser to greater. If their trespass results in this good thing, Gentiles hearing the gospel and believing, then how much better, how much more, how much greater is going to be what happens when they eventually boomerang back and end up trusting Jesus? It's a cliffhanger. I'm not going to tell you because we get a little more clarity in verse 15. Verse 15 is a very similarly... uh, structured sentence that gives us a little more clarity into what exactly that that means. But what Paul is saying is uh, Israel rejects Jesus and then good comes from it. Gentiles believe in Jesus. So eventually Israel is going to embrace Jesus and something even better is going to come from that when it happens. If you don't know what that is, stay tuned. We'll do it in verse 15. Verse 13, he says, Now I am speaking to you as Gentiles. Right? So, I am writing this letter to you, the church in Rome, comprised largely of Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, which is what Paul understood himself to be. He mentions it here. He mentions it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Right? He says, Peter and other apostles are free to do ministry in and around the nation of Israel to Jewish people. I am going to go out to the nation's missionary journeys, shipwrecked. You know, I'm going I'm to go plant churches all over uh, the, the place. That's going to be my personal mission, my contribution to the growing of the, of the church in the, in the early church. I'm going to be an apostle to the Gentiles, which raises the question, why? Paul, I guess, you, I guess you're going to let other people be apostles to Israel because they love Israel more than you do and you don't really like Israel. I guess you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles because you actually love Gentiles more because you're anti-Semitic, right? You, you would rather do ministry among Gentiles than, than, uh, than among Jewish people. He says, no, that's not why I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. That's not why I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles. In fact, I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles in order that I might see some of my fellow Jewish brothers become jealous and thus save some of them. He says, I'm not doing ministry among the Gentiles because I don't care about Israel and because I want less of them to be saved and more of the Gentiles to be saved, I'm doing ministry among the Gentiles because I want more of my Israelite brothers to be saved. And I, my, my understanding is that as more Gentiles come to faith, it's going to prompt more Jewish brothers and sisters to come to faith as well because they're going to see it and they're going to think, hey, that's our, that's our Savior, that's our Messiah. What are they doing? What are those, you know, Gentiles, what are those foreigners doing with our Savior who came to us? So Paul says, that's why I go plant churches in Galatia and Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus. I'm doing it so that Jewish believers in Israel will see it and be like, we want to trust in Jesus too. I think we, I think we made a mistake not trusting in Jesus initially, so let's get on the boat now. Which brings us to verse 15. Which again, is kind of restating what Paul said in verse 12. For if their rejection, Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, means the reconciliation of the world, Gentiles having the opportunity to hear the gospel, believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? 
So most scholars think that this is, is saying that when Israel turns to God in repentance and faith, when a vast majority of Israel trusts in God, when you see a huge revival in the nation of Israel and a significant portion of ethnically Jewish people turn to Jesus and trust in him, that's basically going to be what happens right before Jesus returns. That's kind of, that means the end of the age is uh, about to occur. Jesus is about to come back, which will, also, uh, which will also be accompanied by life from the dead. Everyone who's dead, bodies will get up out of the graves, and they will be raised to newness of life. They will be you know, reunited with their souls that have been in, you know, with God in the presence of God in heaven, and, and God will usher in the new age, eternal life. So Paul's saying, the rejection, Israel rejecting Jesus, which happened when they crucified him, means Gentiles get to hear the gospel, which is where we're at right now. And eventually their acceptance, Israel embracing Jesus, is going to mean life from the dead, Jesus returning, ushering in the new age, eternal life with God under his rule. And the reason why Paul is holding, the reason why Paul is like stubborn in his insistence, because it would be very easy for Paul to say, look, it's leaning, you know, like if you're watching, a, if it's like 36 to 3, and it's like halfway through the fourth quarter, you're like, well, I guess that team lost, I guess this team won, right? It would be easy for people, as the Gentile church is exploding, and as Jewish believers, as, as the vast majority of Jewish people are rejecting Jesus, it would be easy to be like, I guess that just means that, that Israel is done with, with God, and that God is now working exclusively with the Gentiles. The reason why Paul doesn't do that, the reason why Paul is just insistent that God is not done with Israel, he will not ever be done with Israel, and eventually Israel is going to embrace Jesus, is because, verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. The, the, the first fruits of the dough, the first bit of the batch of dough, would be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the forefathers, the patriarchs. And Paul's saying, God made promises to them, right? The root of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is, so, so the branches that come from them, God's not going to make promises to the forefathers and the patriarchs and then abandon those promises. You just, just dismiss and, and forget and, 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 know, and not keep the promises that he made to the, to the root, to the first fruits of the, the batch, so Paul maintains that there will always be a, a remnant of faithful believers in Israel. And he maintains that there will be a future day when there will be revival in Israel, when the vast majority of Jewish people uh, will trust in Jesus. At least I think that's what this, verse, what this passage is saying. And then in verse 17 through 24, he's going to kind of get into the specifics of Given that that's what God is doing, given that, that God is uh, saving Jews and Gentiles, right? There's, there's always a faithful remnant of Jews. He's saving a lot of Gentiles now in the church age, but eventually there's, there's going to be this, this family of Jews and Gentiles together. He's going to now give some, some uh, exhortations, some instructions on how Jews and Gentiles can live together in one body, in the church. Because for centuries, it's pretty much been just Jews. Right? Like, like when Paul's writing this, you know, if you look back, centuries back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God has been working primarily and almost exclusively with Jewish people. So there's not really a lot of cultural tension that they had to worry about. It's just, you know, 
It's been all pretty much homogenous and good. And now, now you've got Jews and Gentiles together. And so Jewish people need to learn how to share God's favor and God's covenantal blessings with Gentiles. And Gentiles need to learn how to come into the people of God that was initially exclusively Jewish and not start, you know, causing trouble and upsetting people. So how do Jews and Gentiles relate together in the family of God? That's the next, you know, seven or so verses. He says, but if some branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in, branches broken off are Israelites, ethnically Jewish people, who did not trust in Jesus, and therefore have forfeited the promises of salvation that God offered to them. Branches broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. That's Gentiles who believe in Jesus and enjoy God's grace and salvation. Some of them were broken off and you were grafted in. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. This is an an instruction levied specifically at Gentile believers, which is us. Don't be arrogant. Be humble. You don't go marching into someone else's house, track dirt all over their floor, jump on their furniture, knock things over and break them and make a mess. That's rude. Don't do that. You come in, you're quiet, you're humble, you, you are respectful, you ask what their house rules are, you try to abide by them. Paul is saying, Gentiles, when you trust in Jesus, you're trusting in a Jewish Messiah. You are partaking of blessings of salvation that were initially offered to the nation of Israel. So be humble. Be kind, be respectful, don't be arrogant. Remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Right? This community that is the people of God did not start out as a Gentile community. It started out as a Jewish community. You Gentiles do not support the root, Israel. The root, Israel, supports you, Gentiles. So how are Gentiles to act? And think about Jewish people, and specifically Jewish believers, with humility, with love, with kindness, with deference, recognizing that we together are all trusting in a Jewish Savior, a Jewish Messiah. Verse 19. But some of you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Right? Like, nah, nah, nah. Like, Right, like he's saying, I can hear some of you, you know, the words coming up in your throat right now, right? Harboring resentment against Jewish Christians, harboring resentment against people who were Christians before you, who, you know, the the shoulders of the very giants that you're standing on. I can see you starting to resent them, right? Here's these Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus. I'm saved. They're not. I believe in Jesus. They don't. I'm going to inherit eternal life. They are not. They were broken off so that I could be grafted in. And Paul says, sure, that's true. It's true that Jewish people who do not trust in Jesus were broken off and that you, a Gentile who do trust in Jesus, have been grafted in to where they were. That's true. But... They weren't broken off because they're inferior to you and you weren't grafted in because you are superior to them. They were broken off because of their unbelief. 
and you stand fast through faith. So the reason why they were broken off is not because they're inferior. The reason why you're grafted in is not because you're superior. That's absurd. They were broken off because they didn't believe in Jesus. They are not receiving the salvation and covenant blessings of God because they don't believe in Jesus. And you were grafted in not because of you or anything that you have done or any sort of worthiness inside of you. You are grafted in because Jesus has saved you and you simply trusted in the person and work of Jesus who died on the cross to save you. God saves those, God doesn't save people because they're better or worse. He doesn't save people because of their ethnicity or their race or their nationality or their gender or any other classification. God saves people who trust in Christ. Jewishness doesn't ensure that you'll be saved. Being a Gentile doesn't ensure that you'll be judged. None of those qualifications make a person inferior or superior. God saves those who trust in Jesus, and he does not save those who do not trust in Jesus. So, the result of that is, do not become proud, but fear. You Gentile believers who are currently enjoying the covenant blessings of God, the promises of God, be humble Don't be arrogant, don't be entitled, don't be proud, but rather fear. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Right? There were Jewish people that were a part of the tree, and God broke them off because they didn't believe the gospel. So let that be a warning to you that you too will be broken off if you do not persevere in your believing the gospel. Note the kindness and the severity of God. So God is not merely kind, nor is God merely severe. He is marked both by kindness and by severity. Turn on the TV, go online. You'll hear a lot about the kindness of God and a lot about the severity of God. God loves you just the way you are. Don't ever change. Love yourself. Self-esteem. Anyone who tells you that you need to change, that's toxic, that's abusive, they're prejudiced. You do you. Go find yourself. Listen to your inner voice. Love is love. God is affirming you and applauding you everything that you do because God is not severity. He's only kindness. Turn or burn. You're all going to hell. God hates you. God hates people like you. God's going to smite you and crush you and punish you because God is only severity and not kindness. Paul says God is both kindness and severity together. His kindness does not negate his severity. His severity does not negate his kindness. God's kinder than you think he is and then you give him credit for. And God is more severe than you think he is and than you give him credit for at the same time. Severity toward those who have fallen, meaning those who don't trust in Jesus, or those who claim to trust in Jesus but then do not persevere and finish the race. God's severe, severe toward those people, but kindness to you, meaning that God is 
kind. He treats those who trust in Jesus, he's kind to them. He treats them better than they deserve to be treated. He gives them salvation and new birth and new life and a new family and eternal life forever with him, provided that, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So in order to receive and keep the benefits of salvation, you have to continue. You have to persevere in the faith. Right? Trusting in Jesus, receiving the salvation that Jesus freely offers, and enjoying eternal life with Christ is not this mystical, magical, one-time box that you check and never think about it again and never interact with it again and your life is no different than it was before because you're locked in like your mortgage like your interest rate on your mortgage if you if you go outside the church there are people here that do this frequently but if you go outside the church and talk with people in the world ask them about god and heaven and hell and whether they think they're going to heaven and why probably hear a number of different answers in my experience, the most common answer that I've heard is, I hope I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person, or I try to be, I try to make it to where my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds so that I will go to heaven. That's probably the most common response I hear. But maybe the second most common response I hear, do you think you're going to heaven, and if so, why? Someone will say, yes, I think I'm going to heaven, and then for the reason why, their assurance is grounded in this something that happened in the past. Some milestone, some religious ritual, some th- you know, years ago, decades ago. Do you think you're going to heaven? Yes. Why? Because my parents are Christian and I was born into a Christian family. Well, you're 45, so what's, what's that have to do with it, right? Like, do you think, you're going to, you think you're going to heaven? Yes. Why? Because I was baptized as a child, because I was, went through confirmation class, because I prayed a prayer, right? Altar call, raise my hand, walk down the aisle, summer camp, throw a pine cone into the fire, whatever it is, right? Do you think you're going to heaven? Yes, because of something, some event, some isolated event that happened in the past. And, yeah, but what about your life right now? How is Jesus affecting your life right now? How is your life different right now as a Christian than it would be if you were not a Christian? I don't know. I don't care. Fortunately for me, it doesn't matter because I'm good to go. I locked in my interest rate. I have an eternal insurance policy. I got it when I was 12. I don't have to think about it anymore. Be as clear as I can. That is false doctrine. And if you believe it, you are, you have false assurance. This idea that you can do something, pray something that will lock in your salvation forever, uh, no matter what, even if I don't walk with Jesus, even if I don't persevere in repentance and faith, from that moment on, I'm good to go because of something that happened in the past that was an isolated event. That is, that is false doctrine. And Paul is saying, if you trust in Jesus, if you receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus is offering you, God will save you provided that you continue in his kindness and persevere in repentance and, and faith. One author um, put it this way. He said, you know, uh, talking about this, uh, the language um, of once saved, always saved, which I think is um, 
correct if understood rightly and incorrect if understood wrongly. But, but he, said, he said that I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of the language of once saved, always saved because it has that implication baked into it, right? That like one thing that you do and then you're always, no matter what, whether you persevere or not. He says maybe a more careful wording might be once saved, forever following. Which maybe that's more helpful, maybe it's, maybe it's not, but... His point is, if you really trust in Jesus, if you really receive the grace of Jesus, it changes your life completely, entirely, irrevocably. So from that point forward, your life as a Christian is different than your life would be if you were not a Christian. There's a discernible difference between you and the non-Christian version of you that you are not anymore. So you have eternal security and assurance of salvation if you persevere in repentance and faith. If you're like me, and you like words, and you like arguing and sparring, and you like thinking about, you know, all this stuff, and what's the implications of this, that, and the other, you might, be, you might have alarm bells going off thinking, wait a minute, just three chapters ago, Paul said very clearly that you cannot lose your salvation, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can condemn us. No one can separate us. Tribulation, distress, persecution, fam- death, life, angels, rulers, nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from the love of God. Paul was clear that you cannot lose your salvation. But here in Romans 11, he's saying you can only enjoy the kindness of God if you continue and remain and persevere. And if you don't, you'll be cut off and experience the severity of God. So which one's right, Romans 8 or Romans 11? Can you not lose your salvation, like Paul says in Romans 8, or can you lose your salvation, like maybe it looks like Paul is saying here in Romans 11? That's the question that's looming. I'll start by saying, just to be as clear as I can, Romans 8 and Romans 11 are both true, 100%, inerrant, infallible, Inspired by God, entirely true. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. If you trust in Jesus, if you're saved by the grace of God, you cannot lose your salvation, period. And if a person does not continue and persevere in the faith, they will be broken off and removed from God's grace and they will, they'll not go to heaven, they'll go to hell. Those are both true statements. How can that be? Either you can lose your salvation or you can't. What's the deal? Uh, I would say you, you cannot lose your salvation. That's impossible. But you can fake it. You can't lose your salvation because you never earned your salvation. You can't stop deserving something that you never deserved in the first place. Your salvation is the result of God's sovereign grace, and God does not make mistakes. God does not lose his children. God does not set out to save someone, see to it that they trust in Jesus, that they are justified by Jesus, reconciled to himself, and then somehow fumble and drop the ball, and then that person that he set out to save somehow ends up in hell. That does not happen, cannot happen. God does not lose his children ever. So if you're truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. But it is possible to fake, to fake it. 
convincingly even. It's possible to fake your salvation so convincingly that you fool people around you, friends, family, pastors. I think it's even possible to fake your salvation so convincingly that you fool yourself. And I think that's probably what someone, what happens when someone identifies as a Christian and they could pass a lie detector test saying that they believe in Jesus. By all accounts, they appear to be a Christian, but then they walk away from the faith and they don't persevere in the faith. In fact, they persevere in rejecting God and rebelling against God. I think when a person does that, they are showing that what appeared to be faith in their lives before was not legitimate. It's not that they lost their salvation because that's not possible. It's that they never had it. 1 John 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So if you trust in Jesus, he saves you, he keeps you forever. He'll never lose you. But part of that keeping and part of that never losing is that he will help you to persevere in repentance and faith and obedience for the rest of your life. There might be blips, fits and starts. There might be seasons where you struggle with indwelling sin. You might battle against depression. You might experience the dark night of the soul. It might even happen for an extended period of time. Those are all things that can definitely happen to true believers, but over the long run, when Jesus saves someone, he keeps them. And he helps them to persevere in faith until they see him face to face. And if someone walks away from the faith, I don't believe the gospel. I don't believe in God. I don't want to walk with Jesus. I want to indulge in unrepentant sin openly, boldly, without remorse, without conviction, and they stay there long enough. They are showing that they never really believed the gospel in the first place, and their heart was never really regenerated in the first place, and they were never really saved by God in the first place. They might have said they were. They might have even thought they were. But the fact that a person does not persevere shows that they were not truly saved by God in the first place. So you can't lose your salvation, but you can fake it. Romans 8, you can't lose your salvation no no matter what. You have assurance that God is sovereign and he will keep you. And Romans 11 is a very real warning saying if you are faking your salvation, don't delude yourself into thinking that you don't need to fear the judgment of God because you do. And if you are sincerely trusting in Jesus, don't stay awake at night fearing that one day in the future you might not. If you are sincerely trusting in Jesus, praise God, keep doing it. Keep walking with Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep pressing into your church family. Keep doing everything that you can to enjoy the assurance of salvation that God wants you to enjoy. Romans 8, Romans 11 are both true assurance and warning. Assurance for the believer who trusts and warning for the person who claims to trust but does not persevere in it. God is kind to those who continue in his kindness and God is severe and will cut off those who do not. Verse 23, 
And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So they are Jewish people who do not continue. So they, 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 trust, they, they trust in Jesus. They, they initially were not believing, but they don't continue in their not believing, which means they started to believe. They trusted in Jesus. Paul says they will be grafted back in to this nourishing olive tree because God has the power to graft them in. God is God. God is sovereign. God can do whatever he wants. 24, if you were cut by what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? He's saying, if there's a Jewish person who does not believe the gospel, but then through the grace of God, they hear the gospel, believe it, and trust in Jesus, if that happens... Don't doubt for a second that God will save them and graft them back in. Of course he will. And if you need proof that he can and will, look at your own life as a Gentile who's been saved by God's grace. You were a wild olive branch, right? If you trace your family as a Gentile far enough back, as much as we like to, you know, memorialize and sentimentalize America, and I I do, uh, if you trace your lineage far enough back, you'll get past America, it's only a few hundred years old, to a, some other nation that was worshiping idols. It hated God, and it was worshiping idols. And so Paul says, if you're a Gentile and not a Jewish person, you're from this wild, uncultivated, just worshiping other gods olive tree, and God took you and saved you. God grafted you into the cultivated olive tree that is the nation of Israel, the people of God who believe in Jesus and trust in him. So if God can do that with you, if God could take this unnatural branch and graft it in to the nourishing olive tree, then of course God can take the natural branch, a Jewish person who has come to believe in Jesus, and graft them back in. He can take a wild branch and graft it in. He can take a natural branch and graft it back in. So will God save Jewish people who trust in Jesus? Yes, absolutely, 100% full-throated, Yes. So, to kind of bring us to a conclusion here, why why did God allow Israel to reject Jesus as their Messiah so so that, why did God allow for much of Israel to be darkened and hardened against the gospel so that the gospel could go out to the world, so that Gentiles could hear it and believe it and trust in Jesus and be saved from their sins? And why has God allowed that to happen? So that Israel will see the Gentiles trusting in the Messiah and eventually come back to Jesus and trust in him themselves. And how has God called us as Jews and Gentiles to live together in this new multi-ethnic family with humility and fear. Humility, recognizing that we didn't earn our salvation. God saved us apart from anything that we have done, anything good in us. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. Our salvation is entirely of the grace of God. And fear. Fear that God will bring his judgment against everyone who does not trust in Jesus and against everyone who does not continue and persevere in repentance and faith. No one is saved by their family, 
their genealogy, their race, their ethnicity. We are saved because Jesus saves us when we trust in him and then when we persevere in repentance and faith together. God's grace saves sinners and keeps sinners. And we respond by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus and walking with him as his disciples together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious, incredible, marvelous miracle that is your sovereign plan of redemption that is unfolding as we speak. We thank you that you allowed the gospel to go to the nations so that we could hear it and believe it. We thank you that you are currently right now building your church. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, old, young, rich, poor. We thank you that you are saving your people, gathering them to yourself so that we can enjoy eternal life with you in your presence under your rule. And we come to you with humility and with fear, trusting you to save us because you are our only hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.